Hello. Well, the podcast isn't coming from Hadrian's Wall, as I thought it might be, because we had a bit of a nasty storm here the week I was due to, to go and visit. So uh, it looks as though it's going to have to be postponed and uh, to another time when there isn't Storm Arlie knocking about, blowing trees and generally causing all sorts of havoc. Um, it's on the doorstep, so it means that it can be, be done another month I do like the idea of doing it it's going to be fantastic and maybe October might be better if it's dry and the weather's nice because we'll get some of those autumnal colours into the pictures so we'll have to see how things go but uh, a bit disappointing but that's the way it goes you rely on the weather to a certain uh, extent with these projects well not to a certain extent you rely on them a lot Anyway, we'll get on to some housekeeping like we usually do, get that out of the way first. And uh, there's been quite a few things added to the website recently. The first one you might notice is a new logo in the top left-hand corner. I've been... Well, I've not been that happy with the logo that I added in April. So I decided that I would have a look online and see whether I could find something that worked better. And I came across this. And the reason why I like it is it's a series of triangles all together, but it looks a bit like a mountain range. There's five triangles all together, if you notice, and which I've called Five Sisters. After the Five Sisters uh, at Glen Shiel. So it's got a bit of a, a, a Highland Mountain sort of feel to it, or at least that's the way I interpret it, uh, which I quite like. I quite like that, that mountain aspect to it, because I like mountains. And it also is simpler, bolder, and seems to work better in the, the corner of the website. So I think it's definitely a keeper. And the great thing is, is I've got some large image files as well, which I can add to T-shirts to and anything else that I want at a future date. It's just a lot simpler and a, a lot cleaner than the old one was. Um, you know, it's quite difficult finding a logo that you actually like. It takes an awful lot of work, but I think this one is, is a keeper. It's, it took a bit of getting used to and a bit of settling in at first. I tried it with a, a transparent background, so there was just the, the, the red background at the top, but I think it works better with a dark black background. It just brings everything out and is a lot bolder. The other thing that occurred at the weekend, uh, not really planned, but I just thought, well, I'll see whether it works or not, and it did, was Cloudflare. Um, it was a service that I used for many years and I had to stop using it last year when I moved across to the, the new hosting company because they didn't have the, the necessary bits and bobs to for me to be able to use it. Anyway, they've gone and added them. They've gone and added the configuration area so I can start using uh, Cloudflare again. If you haven't heard of Cloudflare, it offers website protection and a content distribution network. They have 152 data centers around the world in a lot of the capital cities and main cities uh, all over the place. And basically what it does is if it provides local data center for someone wherever they are in uh, in the world so in, in my case rather than the data files coming from Berlin 
uh, where the, my server is based, they come from a data centre at Edinburgh, which is just up the road. I mean, it's about 100 miles up the road, but it's a damn sight closer than Berlin is, which means that the site speeds up, which is great. And the speed improvements are very, very good. You also get speed improvements from the protection because it means that the bad guys can't get through and start using website resources. I'm talking about, you know, crawlers and people, um, bots who are looking to spam your content forms, um, among other things, protect you from that. And I actually had a look at the statistics for the website uh, Cloudflare has only been running for about three or four days and it's already protected me from 20 threats from various different parts of the world so it's worth having a look if you're after some protection and you you want a really good content distribution network the great thing is is it's free uh, you can pay for certain parts of the service but they do have a free account which you can use and provides a lot of really really good protection and content distribution network services um, I'm really really glad that the site is back behind Cloudflare it offers an awful lot of protection and it means it's one less thing to worry about plus you also get the distribution network which means that your site speeds up and it does speed up so have a look you don't it doesn't matter whether you're using WordPress Drupal Joomla or anything like that have a look you can make the alterations and if it doesn't work for you you can always cancel your account and uh, go back to your the way that things were so it's not going to cost you any money it's just going to cost you a bit of time to set up which doesn't really matter does it uh, a little bit of time uh, an hour of your time something like that that's all it will take to sort of like work through it so that's cloudflare protecting the website again really pleased about that the um the website has had, this is a main website, had just one post, which I actually haven't added to the, the, the site yet, but it will be up by the time that this podcast goes live. And this is from the archive photo, and it's called The Gun and the Flask. And it's shot taken from a project that I did with the Territorial Army, who are like the National Guard of the British Army. They are part-timers they do weekends they do you know the odd week here and there and they are often called up for for active service when uh, the army re requires it uh, the territorial army has served in Afghanistan Iraq basically all of those places where the British army have got a bit of a presence there's probably the TA there and I did this in the mid-1990s as a project about how civilian life and military life sort of like came together. And this photo of the AK-47 hung up on the back of an army truck next to a Boots flask sort of like summed up that uh, idea. Boots, for those who aren't uh, familiar with the UK high street, Boots is a chemist shop. A uh, very well-known brand in Britain. And they used to sell all sorts. They've kind of narrowed down over the years, like a lot of high street shops have. Uh, probably from pressure by, uh, coming from the internet. 
Whether they still do flasks, I'm not sure. They probably might do, but they used to do all sorts of things back in the 1980s. They used to do photography, um, used to be able to buy film and filters. They also used to have a rather good computer game section. I used to get computer games from my Commodore 64 there. But like I say, they've narrowed down over the years, and they're mainly now known for, you know, being a chemist. You can get tooth, your toothbrush and uh, toothpaste and makeup there and they also have uh, a pharmacy where you can uh, buy drugs and things uh, if you've got a prescription uh, you can pick up your uh, drugs and things there so it was a rather iconic sort of symbol um, of civilian life or at least it was to me it's probably not quite as obvious in the picture because uh, but the, the, the boots, flask, definitely did it for me. And the ironic thing is that I actually, of all of the pictures that I took that day, it's one of my favourites. I took pictures with helicopters whizzing over them, people firing rifles and dashing across fields for cover. And the whole sort of like army exercise thing. And yet this still life of the back of, of, the back of an army truck um, is one of my favourites. And, uh, you know, I found a print that I did in a dark room 20 years ago and thought I really really have to have that on my wall so uh, that's what I did earlier this week I went and hung that print and uh, it's a really really nice print it's printed by my own hand in a dark room and I do have very fond memories of dark rooms um, it's the one thing that I miss about modern photography it's not quite the same with uh, with Photoshop, you used to be able to go into a dark room, seal yourself away from the world, put your music on, and the only thing that would matter would be the little print coming up in the tray. It wasn't particularly as efficient as Photoshop. You can work a lot quicker in Photoshop, but it's a bit soulless. It really is. Um, but sadly, dark rooms, you know, take uh, you have to have a place for them. Um, it's not quite as much fun setting one up and taking it down again. It's a lot better if you've got a, a nice little room put away somewhere. When I win the lottery, I would definitely have a dedicated dark room. Um, but I've got to win the lottery to get that. I don't really have the space in this house to be able to do it. I can uh, process film. That's not a problem. Processing the film isn't, uh, but the actual printing of prints um, is a bit more difficult. And it would be really nice to do. It'd be interesting to see whether I can actually remember what to do. I think so. It's a bit like falling off a bicycle, isn't it? So that is uh, the from the archive. It's um, yeah. It's like I say. It's one of my favourite prints. One of my better projects. One of my better executed projects as well. It's something that I would really like to have a, another crack at. Sort of covering the the TA in the twenty first century. A lot has happened to them um, since I took those pictures. They were sort of. Oh, well, it almost looked as though the TA was going to be disbanded towards the end of the late 1990s. Uh, the government didn't really see any f function or any purpose for them. And then September the 11th changed all that. There was Afghanistan and Iraq. And now, of course, there's 
the battle with ISIS, and also there's financial implications as well for defence budgets where governments like the idea of having an army, but they don't like the idea of paying for one. And if you can have uh, a larger amount of part-time soldiers, it eases the bills somewhat, doesn't it? So the TA, to a certain extent, is actually starting to take on more of a role within the army than it did back in the 1990s. So it will be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years and we see what sort of percentage of the British Army are part-time. Back in the 1990s it was about a third, uh, but I can imagine where it starts creeping up and maybe even becomes 50% are reservist, which would, well, it'd be, be quite interesting to see how that works. It's not always easy for people because, of course, if you have to end up doing a, a tour in Afghanistan or Iraq, and you're in a TA, you've got a full-time job. You've got to have a very understandable boss to give you that amount of time off. Um, and they used to get it, but I can imagine that it can put some strain on your uh, on your work life. But anyway, that's the that's the TA. So that's about it for the blog post. I don't think there's anything else. There was just one other thing I was going to mention and, and really this was something I came across on Twitter and it was a bit of footage that people were retweeting and liking and commenting about like mad. And it was some footage of a jet coming into land. It looked like um, a Chinese um, airport. I can't remember exactly where it was but it was it was supposed to be somewhere in the Far East anyway. But it was being blown about by, by the winds, and this was while typhoons were apparently hitting uh, China and various other different places, Hong Kong. And... But this jet was being knocked about, and at one point it was actually knocked over where it, it literally did uh, a roll. It rolled over, literally was flying upside down at one point, and then sort of like righted itself again. Instantly, I thought there's something the matter with that. It's a large commercial jet. They don't handle like, you know, a fighter would. Um, anyway, I started looking down the thread and someone said, you know, this is fake footage. This isn't a news story. It is fake. And it actually turned out that the footage was from a YouTube video that had been posted by a special effects company last year. Uh... It had been all digitally made. It looked absolutely faultless apart from some of the manoeuvres of the aircraft which probably structurally just wouldn't be able to take it. Uh, like I say, you know, uh, uh, it looked like a 767. Um, it was along that sort of like lines of, of size and the 767 does not handle like, you know, an F-15, does it? So instantly I, I was sort of a bit sceptical about whether this was a, a, a real news story. The person who had posted it had said that it was, uh, you know, it had happened during the typhoons recently. 
uh, this sort of like in the last seven days, something like that, and uh, that the captain should be, you know, awarded a medal for, you know, doing a recovery like that. I actually think he put it on his Twitter feed just to get some clickbait. I think that's all it was, and it was working. I mean, he'd, he'd got thousands of retweets, he'd got thousands of likes, people were commenting about it and going, oh my God. They weren't actually reading the image, they weren't actually analysing the image, they weren't judging the image, they were literally just taking the images, uh, the, the, the footage, the, the image of the airliner coming in as a legitimate news source, which it wasn't. Um, a bit of research, a bit of looking around and you could soon find some links. These were even in the, even in the, the Twitter post thread underneath the, the the tweet by the the individual who'd put it onto his side but they, they, they there were even links in there saying you know look this is fake uh, the guy had tried to defend it saying you know well well I've lived there etc you know and stuff like this will happen but um, it obviously was fate and the people were just taking it as legitimate footage. They were believing what they were seeing. They weren't even attempting to analyse it or see whether it was not quite right, which I would say would be quite obvious, but how many people were actually looking at it and doing that um, was difficult to tell. I would say a lot of them aren't. And really, with all of this fake news, it sort of proved to me that we are getting to a point where digital technology, whether it's for altering images or for creating special effects, are getting to the point where they're so good that the vast majority of the people aren't questioning what they're, they're looking at and making a decision for themselves about whether that image is... I'm not going to use the word truthful because that is itself is a bit of a loaded term, but whether that image is correct, whether it's right, whether it looks right, whether it behaves correctly. Like I say, if the plane, when it was coming in, hadn't done the roll right over, if it had just been knocked about a bit and was doing some violent manoeuvres, then I would have probably have said, yeah, that is a legit piece of footage but because it was doing some really mad stuff instantly and especially as I, I like aviation I absolutely love aviation and aircraft and things um, it instantly sort of like raised a few uh, flags for me and thought you know that isn't quite right but yes we need to be far more questioning people about the way that we read images the way that we view images we need to sort of like have our own editorial standards and say and flag up things that aren't aren't real or certainly need to be investigated further because if we end up where we don't question anything um all sorts of things can uh, can happen and like i say this guy had put this footage up and i am sure that they just put it up just to get clicks and likes and followers you know, he isn't interested about whether he's lying or not. He's just interested in the result that it gets, which I find quite depressing. But anyway, that's just something that came across my screen recently. And I, I just, to be honest, actually, it's not depressed me, but it, I just 
it surprised me that people would be that gullible, to be brutally honest. But, you know, you uh, there was a term many years ago that I heard. I can't remember what it was exactly, but um, visually uneducated, I think it was. Visually uneducated was a term that one of my lecturers used to use uh, on a semi-regular basis. And that's what he was doing with us. Is he was visually educating us so that we could read an image, we could analyse an image. And it isn't that difficult once you get used to it. It kind of clicks in eventually. It seems a bit odd, but I actually think a lot of it's common sense. You often look at something and you think, yeah, that's either uh, a legitimate photograph of an event or something will stand out and you think, no, that doesn't work. It's getting more and more difficult as the technology gets better to be able to alter things. But I still think a lot of it's about gut feeling and you've just got to go with that gut feeling about whether you think something is real or not. Because if you think that it isn't real, then chances are, especially if you've got one or two things that you can point out to uh, as evidence, um, then the chances are is that it probably isn't real. Like I say, a 767 can't roll like that. It just snapping off and crashing to the ground. Right, on to the links. The first one is about Brexit, which usually puts people to sleep. It certainly does me. Uh, 2016, of course, the United Kingdom decided that it was going to uh, leave the EU. A bit of a surprise result. Um, pretty much divided the country. Uh, the vote to leave was 52% to 48%. Um, but in places like Northern Ireland, the vote to remain was 56%. So it was, you know, the majority of the p people. And Northern Ireland has benefited a lot from the EU, uh, especially when it came to the peace process and border issues. And it's about border issues that this photography essay deals with it's by a photographer called Charles McQuillan and he decided to try and document growing tensions over Brexit and the border in Northern Ireland the border the frontier between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland runs for 310 miles and it's the only border between the UK and the EU um, so it's quite a delicate area. It's also got quite a bit of history because, of course, it was heavily patrolled uh, by the police and soldiers during the Northern Ireland conflict of the late 20th century. And really what Charles McQuillan has done is used portraiture with... Um, panoramic landscapes and brought them both together to take these fantastic panoramic portraits of people in the environment near the border and they sort of like discuss their thoughts and fears and worries and he talks to quite a good cross-section as farmers there's a student there's a vice chair of the chamber of commerce and trade there's an undertaker there's a cancer support worker firework specialist oyster farmer burger van owner fisherman and right at the bottom of the post there is some technical notes which is fabulous uh, all about 
using the panoramic cameras and why he shot using that format and what it gave to the photos. Brilliant set of images, a very, very difficult subject matter to get across visually, but I think Charles McQuillan's images start to do that. And um, yeah, a fantastic series of images about a very, very serious situation. At the moment, there's all sorts of discussions going on about how border controls will work between Northern Ireland. A lot of people there want it to say pretty much as it is, but whether that's going to be able to uh, happen uh, after we leave the EU, um, it's a mess, basically. It's a big, big, complicated mess which needs sorting out. And, um, yeah, it's it's almost the ultimate sort of like uh, symbol of the problems which leaving the EU has created for this country and there are a lot of them but photographing them is quite difficult so it's been it's impressive that Charles McQuillan has been able to do uh, such a, a great job of getting that across visually using portraits of all things but fa fabulous so that's Brexit Worries from Irish Border, a photo essay, and that's on The Guardian. The next uh, set of uh, links, the next in the links is about Dickie Chappell. Dickie Chappell was the first female journalist uh, to be killed in Vietnam in 1965. She used to work a lot with the Marine Corps. Uh, she was a photojournalist who'd worked for, for many years. Um, she'd done all sorts of she made practice jumps in Korea and then went off to Vietnam because she wanted to uh, cover you know from, from various different angles and the National Geographic have done a very nice piece about her including some uh, audio footage 46 minute audio bits of Dickie Chappell discussing her experience, documenting some of the toughest stories in the world at an overseas press club broadcast from 1964, which is definitely worth a listen. Um, I mean, the, the news business back then was completely different to what it is now, but it's a fascinating listen uh, anyway. And um, her images are, are fantastic as well. Sadly, probably one of the better-known images of her is when she's lying on the floor after she was uh, injured. She was hit by shrapnel from um, a grenade wired to a mortar triggered by a tripwire on a path near where she was uh, when she was with a patrol. And she was hit in the neck by shrapnel and died on the floor of a helicopter, evacuating her to, to hospital. And um, there's a really, really well-known um, picture of her lying on the floor, dying, basically, with a, a Marine Corps chaplain over her, giving her the, the last rites. It's a very sobering um, image. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, what war was about. And sometimes the photographers ended up on the on the receiving end of it. And uh, but 
you know, she did some fantastic work. And another photographer I will also mention, um, another female photographer from the Vietnam War that you should have a look at if you aren't already familiar with the work, is Catherine Leroy. Um, she ended up doing all sorts of things, including parachuting into combat with the Screaming Eagles. And uh, she's a very, very small lady, very petite, uh, incredibly brave and she's probably best known for going across the front line at Hue in 1968 when the Americans were fighting the uh, Viet Cong there. She actually went across the front line and managed to photograph you know the North Vietnamese troops and then make her way back across the front line and get a lift back with a, a helicopter. Don McCullen in his uh, autobiography um, mentions this he'd been photographing the marines in Huey was getting a lift out on a Huey helicopter and this little lady got in with cameras around her and she just made her way back from the the uh, North Vietnamese she managed to get back across the, the front line which can't have been easy bloody dangerous I would have thought as well and she managed to do that and get these incredibly unique pictures of uh, the enemy fighting, for the want of uh, a better way of putting it. The North Vietnamese uh, uh, had initially just wanted to sort of to chuck her back, but she'd managed to convince them that uh, she was uh, able to put their side of the, the fight. And she came out with some fantastic images of the North Vietnamese troops. I'll try and find a link for... The podcast link section with some of those images if I can. So that is um, a great little piece about uh, Dickie Chapel. Uh, also mentioned of course Catherine Leroy at the end but this is mainly about Dickie Chapel and uh, an incredibly um, an amazing female war photographer who ultimately paid the ultimate sacrifice for uh, you know, uh, an American journalist, uh, a female journalist at that. Uh, but yeah, that is inside the daring life of forgotten female war photographer, Dickie Chapel. The next link is from the Magnum Photos site. It's Wayne Miller. I haven't actually got any of Wayne Miller's uh, work, photography-wise, in a book or anything like that, but I'm definitely going to have to have a look out for some of his stuff because I really, really do like it. This is Wayne Miller, A Human Touch, looking back on the life and work of acclaimed documentary photographer and one of Magnum's former presidents on the centenary of his birth. Wayne Miller... Um, really did you know do some fantastic work uh he ended up um during world war Two. he was sought out he was invited by edward steichen to join the elite naval photographic unit that he, steichen had established during world war Two. there was five photographers uh, of which miller was the youngest and most experienced and the group's members were free to photograph what they wished but encouraged by steichen to focus on the human side of the conflict steichen's images uh u.s navy images are absolutely fantastic they are pretty much unique because they're, they're not really dwelling with uh the battle itself but they're dealing with the the life the work that sailors were 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 doing as fighting the war you know it's not all fighting it's uh 
you know um it's part of your life isn't it it's it's i mean probably one of the the best images uh certainly one of the that i like is a photograph of uh mess men uh in their quarters aboard the uss nassau south pacific between october the 26th 1943 and december the 9th 1943 and it's uh, just sort of like you know some sailors just playing cards uh some of them are lying in their bunks and they're just using this old looks like an, an old box as a table but absolutely fantastic images no action in there at all but it's just day-to-day -day stuff that needed to be recorded there are also some other images uh dealing with uh back in the states from after the war uh rather interesting one chicago illinois usa 1947 with a couple of firemen on top of a fire truck dousing the fire um a whole set of fantastic images really nice tones really brilliant angles just capturing life and the great thing is, is there's a, a fantastic video at the end as well the world is young that uh, you can have a look at as well which includes uh, Miller talking about his work so that is Wayne Miller human touch highly recommended uh, photographies from uh, Magnum if you like black and white photography then you'll probably love Miller's work the final link I'm going to talk about is Sparks Fly on F1 racetracks. Um, this is a piece by The Atlantic where they've chosen a certain aspect about modern Formula One, which is the Sparks flying again. Uh, 2015, a change in the Formula One racing regulations brought titanium skid blocks back to the cars, probably because they wanted to bring the Sparks back to F1 again and um, it says that the rules were mostly changed for safety reasons uh, but also to reinduce some visual aesthetics uh, I actually think probably is to reinduce reintroduce some visual uh, aesthetics Formula One's not had an easy time recently um, I used to be a big Formula One fan back in the 1990s absolutely loved it um, I still do love motorsport although most of it now is uh, motorcycles really that I prefer but I really used to love Formula One races but it was one of those things that um, I just seemed to drift away from and I don't really know why but I think part of it was was I used to find it quite processional at times it was rather formulaic it was rather predictable and I don't think form I don't think Formula One should be like that. I don't think motorsport should be like that. Um, these days, I can see the viewpoint when people say Lewis Hamilton winning again um, kind of doesn't really do the motorsport that much in the way of favours. There's nothing to say, you know, against Lewis, who's a fantastic driver and is doing some uh, great drives, but if a driver continues to win on a regular basis it can become very predictable almost factory like 
there was the same complaint made during the 1990s when Schumacher was Michael Schumacher was winning his races in a similar sort of fashion to to Lewis and um, I would just like to see a bit more competitive spirit. You do tend to see that with the motorcycles. Uh, there there are some key players in uh, things like the Isle of Man TT who you know win regularly, but generally generally speaking. There's quite a good mishmash of talent there, and it is very, very demanding, um, sort of like circuits, the Isle of Man. So anything can happen, um, and sometimes it does. With the Formula One, um, there seems to be less margin for error, which can mean that yeah, you can end up with quite similar results race after race which I don't think does Formula 1 much in the way of favours for gaining new fans or keeping fans probably my favourite image from this page is number 14 Daniel Ricciardo of Australia drives an Aston Martin Red Bull Racing RB14 Tog here on the racetrack during practice for the Formula One Grand Prix of Austria at Red Bull Ring on June 29th, 2018 in Austria. That would look absolutely fantastic on the wall. The red and white lines with the car sparking and going past. Absolutely superb image. I really do like looking at Formula One images, but the races now are... Uh, yeah, I don't don't watch them anymore. And it's rather surprising if you'd have said that to me, you know, 20 years ago, then I wouldn't be watching the Formula One anymore. I'd have probably laughed and said, why not? Um, but some things you just drift away from, don't you? So that is Sparks Fly on F1 racetracks and fantastic, uh, fantastic series of images. You can also view them, by the way, using the full screen setting and i would certainly recommend that for uh, if you've got a large monitor because it's a great way of viewing these really impressive motorsport images that is it for the podcast i will be back next month there will also be uh, a special podcast uh, along with the regular one it's another double bill month in october so until then i'll say thank you very much for downloading and listening to this and i will see you all next month.